Good morning, church family. If you would please turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Today we are going to read the Apostle Paul's sermon at Mars Hill, hence the goofy title. So um, just if you would, please turn there, and we're going to be looking starting in verse 22. And by the way, you may have noticed that I recycled last week's picture uh, for the slides, and I'm not going to apologize for it, because for one thing, it's the same story. And for another thing, most of the slides are actually going to be referenced to something uh, that I know almost nothing about, which is baseball. And so if, you, if you're confused by me saying that, that's okay. Um, it'll make sense eventually, I, I hope, anyway. Um, but Paul's speech, Paul's sermon at Mars Hill, after Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2, is possibly the most well-known sermon in the book of Acts, simply because of how different it is from all the others. Because up until this point, nearly every sermon that we've come across was either aimed at Jews or it was aimed at devout Gentiles, which probably meant that they were Gentiles who were trying to worship the true God uh, of Israel, the Jewish God. Okay? But this appears to be the first recorded instance of a Christian that's trying to evangelize a group of total pagans, and it shows in his method. Now, you remember how, how Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, right? It was, it was very in-your-face. You know, he told his, his Jewish listeners, he said, you've killed the Messiah. You know, the person that they've been waiting for centuries to see. And then he backed it up, these assertions, by using their own scriptures as evidence. And his tone was harsh because it deserved to be. His audience should have known better. They'd seen Jesus perform miracles. They, they'd heard his teaching, but they still, many of them, sided against him with the religious leaders. And Peter spoke very plainly, very confrontationally. But that's very different from what we see in today's passage. You may ask, why? Well, obviously it's a different speaker, for sure. But more importantly, it's a different audience. See, the people of Greece didn't know the Lord of, of Israel. And they, they hadn't had the same pro, you know, uh, promises about the Messiah. They hadn't received the same revelation. They hadn't seen or heard Jesus himself. And so the, they warranted a different approach from the people in Jerusalem and the people that were the, the diaspora, the people that had been scattered to the Gentile nations but were still Jewish. So who was this group of people? You remember last week we talked about them a little bit. They had uh, a couple of factions in there. You remember the Stoics and the Epicureans? And these were completely different, they're extremely different groups in their, their philosophy, and they were both uh, Athenian culture, okay? They've been described as competing schools of Greek philosophy. So the Stoics were, were pantheists, and they worshipped uh, whichever gods they chose, right? While the Epicureans, basically, they didn't believe in gods at all or an afterlife. They basically just followed their bellies. So the views of each group was opposed to the other, but both of those views were opposed to Christianity as well. But they had been intrigued by Paul's claims of a resurrection from the dead, enough to bring him to a public forum, Mars Hill, so that they could hear what he has to say. So now Paul, he's got an opening, right? He's got a platform, and he was going to use them because his, his mission was to share the message of Christ with these pagans. Now, why would this be of interest to us to study Paul's message here? I, I think our situation 
has a lot of parallels to, to Paul's. And, and y'all, I know, I, listen, I know there was a time where the vast majority of, of adults in the United States were at least aware of what the Bible teaches. And some of y'all remember that time. And the Civil War also. No, I'm kidding. No. But some of you remember that time. But I think we can say, in all fairness, that our country has not reflected biblical values for many, many years. And a huge number of people in our, maybe even most people in our nation, are now totally ignorant of the gospel message. They might believe in a God, right? Or, or they may be, believe that they are, are spiritual. You've heard that, right? I consider myself spiritual. Very vague, very nondescript and noncommittal. But they don't know the real God. They don't know His Son, Jesus Christ. They don't know how to be saved and receive the forgiveness of sin and receive eternal life. And so in a sense, we are in a culture very similar to first century Greece. And so I think it might be wise for us to pay attention to the way that Paul preached at Mars Hill and kind of see how it applies to our own context. So would you pray with me and then we'll we'll dive in. Father God, I thank you so much for this church, for these people, for those who are watching online. For those who will listen to the sermon later, I thank you, God, that everyone is here for a reason. And I pray, Father, that each of us have open hearts and minds to be receptive to your word, that you will plant seeds in us, that, as as I frequently pray, that will take root and bear fruit. God, we want this church to be a beacon of light. We want each of us corporately and all of us uh, together. We we want that, and, and individually, we want to be able to shine your light on others. So we ask, Father, that you will remind us of your goodness and that you remind us of your power and that today we are going to to learn something that we can use in the future, maybe even later this afternoon. So help us to pay attention in Jesus' name, amen. All right, beginning of verse 22. says, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, that's that's the Greek name uh, Mars Hill, said, men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, this is where it's going to get a little weird, okay? Because uh, we're using an unconventional outline. We're going to use a baseball diamond. Uh, anyone here ever, like, play baseball in Little League or, you know, some of you guys have, or in school or whatever? Um, the extent of my baseball playing experience as a child uh, was being on a t-ball team called the Little Giants. We played an entire season, and we did not win one single game. Not one. And in case you're wondering, how is that even statistically possible? Because these are all a bunch of kids, right? I very clearly remember a particular game where I struck out at T-ball <laughs> twice in one game. We were terrible. <laughs> However, I've watched the sand lot, so I know a little bit about baseball. Um, I've watched it a few times. You're killing me, Small. So, so, so there's that. But most of us know, most of us know at least the routine of going around the bases, 
right? I mean, we have, we have that, at least we understand that. You start at home, and then assuming your bat actually connects with the ball, um, so you head to first base, and then second, and then third, and then you head home. And of course, in baseball, it has to happen precisely in that order. You gotta touch every base, right? And witnessing doesn't always look the same. So I'm not saying that this is the only way to witness to people with no concept of the Christian faith, but as Paul shows, it is certainly an option. It's funny, y'all, y'all are putting your arms up, and I'm like, is there a question? <laughs> There's two of you at the same time, just stretching. Anyway, um, I'm so easily distracted, you guys. It's like, it's shiny, what? Um, anyway, um, there's definitely a sequence in this message that makes sense, okay? So with that in mind, let's take a look at how Paul heads for first base with this particular audience, okay? The first thing that he seems to do is kind of take stock of the situation around him. Because remember, last week we read he was walking through Athens, and, and it says his spirit was provoked right, by all these idols that he saw. It was like there's one on every corner. And so that may have stirred a memory, though, when he saw that one specific altar, the altar to the unknown God. Uh, we're going to get to that. He, it's something he may have remembered from his history lessons. But it appears that the first thing that Paul did was find a common ground from which to get the conversation started. Okay, he understood that these pagans were trying to make sense of the world just like everyone else. But they had not yet received the revelation that God had given to the Jews. And so you may want to add, by the way, if you're taking notes, you might want to write down that knowing your audience is a big part of witnessing, okay? And if you're not taking notes, write that in your brain. (laughs) Knowing your audience is a big part of witnessing. So the example that Paul used to break the ice was an altar to an unknown God. He saw a few from what we can tell, but Paul may have, not from what we can tell, he saw this one, but I think he saw more than one, and here's why. He probably knew the story behind this altar, and it goes something like this. Um, There's a few different versions floating around. This is the one that um, is probably the most accurate. Around 6th century BC, there was a terrible plague, a pestilence in Greece, and it was taking out a lot of people. And so the rulers of the city assumed that one of their gods was angry at them, right? Because that just makes sense. So they tried to offer a sacrifice to every god in the book, like every god that they could think of. They tried to offer a sacrifice hoping somebody would stop being mad and they would be appeased, and so this plague would go away. And of course, none of these gods were actually gods, so they couldn't do anything about the plague, and so people just kept dying. But there was this one guy, this prophet poet, and his name was Epimenides. Okay, He lived in those days. And even by the first century AD, Epimenides had earned almost a mythical status because he, was his, he had great wisdom. His, his, his uh, history about him, um, there's some stuff that may be legend, some stuff that is most likely true. He was also an author. Paul quotes him several other times in Scripture, uh, at least twice more. But anyway... Um, Paul definitely knew about him, okay? He, he knew about him because you're not going to quote somebody unless you know something about him, hopefully. Uh, I say that, and then I think about Facebook and how much stuff is floating around on there, whatever. But he, you've heard the, you know, the thing that says, don't believe everything you read on the Internet, Abraham Lincoln, you know? <laughs> anyway, um, but, but with the city rulers baffled, okay, this plague is still killing people. This guy, Epimenides, he, he, he recommended perhaps there was a God that they had overlooked, or they had somehow missed, right? And so he brought several sheep to Athens, and then 
he had those sheep followed by people. They just kind of let him go. And wherever a sheep lay down, they would build an altar to an unknown God and slaughter that sheep on it. And according to the story, the plague stopped after that. So if you think about it, the Athenians were already aware of a story involving the appeasement of divine wrath through the death of a lamb. Just saying. Anyway, by drawing on this legend, which which I think actually happened, Paul has found common ground for discussion. And then he sort of remarks in, in a positive way, which stands out. I mean, what he could have said, you know, and it probably wouldn't have been very effective, is, wow, you guys are a bunch of pantheistic losers who worship demons, right? He would have been telling the truth, but instead he tells them, I can see that all of you are in, very, in every way a very religious people. Perhaps it's not a bad idea to start with a compliment when trying to witness to people, especially those who have little to no background in, in, in the knowledge of Christianity or of Christ. There's nearly always something kind that we could say to introduce truth, introduce that, that subject without compromising. Okay, Is it true that they're religious? Yeah. Were they wrong? Yeah. But he, he gets into that, right? He starts off with, I can see that you're a very religious people. I think this is a truly masterful way to get the ball rolling. Uh, We're going to read on. The God who made the world and everything in it, he says, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to mankind life and breath and everything. So remember, he's drawn attention to their religiosity. He's used that to establish a connection. And then he builds on it by saying this, okay? And he gives them that little tidbit. He says, what you therefore worship as unknown now, I proclaim to you. So he's pivoting here, and he's heading for second, okay? So he's kind of set the hook, right? He's going for second base. He's established his connection. He's laid the groundwork for mutual respect because they don't feel like they're being condescended. But now he has to say, what he tactfully hadn't said before, again, that they were a bunch of demon-worshipping pantheists. And so it's hard to say that, right, without shutting people out. So instead of pointing at it directly, Paul approaches it in kind of a roundabout sort of way. Instead of with direct confrontation, he simply refutes their beliefs by sharing the truth. First, he introduces them to God's exclusivity. You know, by saying God made the world and everything in it. What he's doing there, he's not outright saying it, but he is implying that there is no need for any other gods. You know, the Greek tend to, and really the the Romans who followed after the Greeks and just about everybody else in that time period, they would compartmentalize creation. And they had different gods and and demigods in charge of all these different parts of, of nature. But since Yahweh is Lord of both heaven and earth, right, then then Zeus and Gaia and all the others are are unnecessary. God is the one and only, right? And he doesn't doesn't have any competition. And on top of that, he's exclusive and that he is entirely self-sufficient. You know, these Greek mythical gods, they weren't particularly transcendent so much as ultra-powerful. You know, they were almost more like superheroes or supervillains. You know, they could do amazing things, but they were just as messed up as all the the rest of us are. Our God is not like man. He He doesn't need something from us to be satisfied. 
or in order to, to do what he wants to do. In fact, he is the source of humanity. And Paul continues, he says, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. I, this is not in my notes, but I want to say this, allotted periods. I believe there is one for the United States of America, don't you? Every empire has an end. I think the only reason that we're still here right now is because God has, has done a, a, hey, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, there's, which there weren't any righteous people other than Lot, apparently, but just like Sodom and Gomorrah, I think God is saying, you know what? As long as there are some righteous people. And right now, there's still people that are righteous. We're righteous by faith. It's not because we do everything right. But there is an allotted period for our nation, just as there is every other nation, every other empire in history. Just be aware of that. Anyway, so I'm sorry I went off the subject there, but having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. You know, I think as a carryover from the previous sentence, Paul then introduces the fact that God has no limits to his power or authority. He made everyone from one man, Adam, right? And has sovereignly put into place the winds and the wares of people. And he even provided a general revelation of himself through nature so, so that people would have an idea that he exists and that he rewards those who seek after him, which is very Romans 1, by the way. So, Romans 2 also. So, in a, in a very non-threatening way here, and that, that's key, I think, is he's being very non-confrontational, non-threatening. Paul is undercutting Greek theology simply by making assertions about this unknown God who is known to him. He's the only God. He's the all-powerful God, and yet he is intimately involved with his creation. I love that last sentence yet he is actually not far from each one of us. That, to, to me, that, that shows God relates very differently from, from the gods of Greek myth. You, you, you remember the Disney movie Hercules? It's a pretty good movie. <laughs> uh, or Clash of the Titans? Either the awesome old one or the slightly less awesome new one. You, you remember these? In those movies, we see the traditional Greek view of these gods just kind of hanging out up there on Mount Olympus, you know, and they, they only occasionally get distracted with what goes on in the earthly realms. But the true God, the true God is near. He's near to each one of us. According to Paul, he's even near, he says he's never far from us. He is near even to those who don't. He's near. He's present in the lives of man. He's never far from us. So, so in saying this, Paul introduces God's proximity, his, his closeness. And it is, it is super encouraging for me to remember that Jesus will never leave nor forsake his people. Amen? He will never leave nor forsake his people. And this, this probably would have been an interesting concept for these pagan minds because they, they didn't have any any idea of their gods as personal or even really loving. You know, everything their gods did was pretty much just kind of self-gratifying or in their own self-interest. 
Again, they're typically more like supervillains or superheroes than God. And I'll bet it was intriguing for them to consider that there's really just one God who, who actually provides a way to know him. And anyway, Paul continues, For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then his offspring, Paul continues, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Okay, now at this point, Paul has rounded second base. He's heading for third, okay? He's made a connection with people. He's laid down some basic truths about God that also subvert the idea of of multiple impersonal gods. But now notice what he does. He quotes from poets who are also pagans. I think that's interesting. And the, the following statement may be shocking to some people, but if something is true, then where you heard it doesn't change the fact that it's true. This also works the other way. If something is false, then the source of the information is irrelevant to the fact that it's false. You know, a very sincere person might think they're telling the truth, but sincerity is not the measuring stick for truth. Reality is. You remember a sermon, uh, maybe it was a week or two ago, we, we talked about the nature of truth, right? How all truth is God's truth. So if something is true, you know the ultimate source of that truth is God. So so it's okay to quote someone that you vehemently disagree with on some other things if the quote itself is true. Now, if you're wondering, what's his point? It's simply this. Paul made use of secular culture to reach his audience, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Remember, when, when preaching to the Jews, the apostles used Scripture, that the Jewish people were very familiar with in order to convince them Jesus is the Christ. And these, these pagan Gentiles, though, they, they weren't familiar at all with the Old Testament. And I mean, I don't think that Paul was sitting there thinking, you know, if I just quote Habakkuk at that moment, <laughs> it's going to have the desired effect. Now, here's the thing. Bear in mind, all Scripture is breathed out by God, right? And as it's been recently pointed out to me, that, that doesn't mean that Paul's every action was fully in line with the Holy Spirit, okay? And so I'm not claiming that Paul's sermon here is the divine blueprint for witnessing to non-Christians, but I I think if you look at it, you see a logical flow here. It seems like he was speaking by the Holy Spirit. You know, look at these two quotes, because Paul is, he's citing ancient poets here, all right? I think we can accept that if Paul is saying it, that these words are true. In him, the Lord, we live and move and exist. That is true for everybody, whether you're a Christian or not. Apart from God's breath, apart from God's word, sustaining, holding all of creation together, it's all gone. And when he says we are his offspring, the Greek word translated offspring, it means literally kin, and it can be used literally or figuratively. So like we might say, hey, what's up, Kim folk? You know, hey, fam, how you doing? It doesn't necessarily mean it's a person that's directly related to you. But what he's saying, he's using secular sources here to back up what Scripture teaches and that there's something special about humankind, you know, because we're made in the image of God. And therefore, it's kind of silly 
to imagine that something that can be carved out of a rock or out of a tree trunk has any bearing on who we are. Which, by the way, is part of Paul's argument as well. He uses an appeal to logic and reason. Now, obviously, if you're thinking logically, you understand that idols aren't gods. And that some material statue certainly cannot capture the essence of a god. God made us, right? We didn't make him. And there's a great passage in the, the, the book of Isaiah, chapter 44, that just shows how silly and illogical idol worship actually is. I, I want to share some of this with you, okay? God's been talking about how, how carpenters and blacksmiths fashion idols out of other materials. He talks about specifically these, these carpenters taking wood from trees, and they start sounding honestly st- sarcastic, okay? He says, listen, the trees become fuel for people to burn. So they take some of them and they warm themselves with them. They start fires and bake bread. They also make gods from these trees and worship them. They make them into carved statues and bow down in front of them. Half of the wood they burn in the fire. Over this half they roast their meat and eat until they're full and they warm themselves and say, ah, we are warm, we can see the fire. But the rest of the wood they make into gods, carved statues. They bow to them and worship them. They pray to them, saying, rescue us because you are our gods. It really does sound ridiculous when you put it that way, doesn't it? God's speech right there in Isaiah 44, that is truly an appeal to reason. You cut down a tree, and you cut it up, and you build a fire with half of it and worship the other half. That doesn't make sense. Likewise, in in our Acts 17 text, Paul is exposing how nonsensical it is to believe that that God permeates us and surrounds us and that we are incredibly special to him, but at the same time, make up things to worship. Because the first part of that's true. God does permeate us and surround us, and, and, and we are incredibly special to him. So why would we worship an idol? But notice... Again, he's not saying, you people are idiots. But rather, it makes more sense, based on the information we have, that the creator of all this isn't something you can capture with a statue. Now, folks, I think that's really classy. (laughs) And for a modern-day equivalent to this argument, just think about how many people believe that the entire universe, and all of its grandeur, and all of its order somehow came from an explosion. As a child, I liked to make explosions. <laughs> it never created order, okay? I get the impression that, that Paul would have reminded a Jewish person that didn't believe in, in creation. He would probably say, hey, uh, what about Genesis 1-1? But if Paul was speaking to a modern-day agnostic, He might have quoted Albert Einstein, who wrote in 1936, the more I study science, the more I believe in God. Now, there's plenty that Einstein believed that was wrong. He never became a Christian, as far as we know. But that quote fits. And then Paul might point to the fact that the the second law of of thermodynamics, which is good science, proves that macroevolution is impossible. 
And then when his opponent is, is shaken and questioning his previous beliefs, that's when the door is open for the good news. Not when you smack somebody in the head. When you ask them a question, they can't answer. Let's see how Paul deals with that. You know, he's, he's not really asking questions here. He's making statements, but the statements are, are very much a challenge, a gentle challenge to their beliefs. But here he is. He's bringing it home. Um, he says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Here it is. The the first three bases were all about preparing for this last sprint. Okay? Now he's got people on board with his train of thought. Paul brings up the most important part of the message, the part leading to salvation. Okay? He starts out by pointing out God's mercy because of human ignorance, right? But then he introduces repentance. To repent means to experience a change of mind that relates or results in change behavior. It's been a while since I brought this up, so I'm going to say it very quickly. Saying I'm sorry is not repentance. That is apologizing. Saying I'm sorry, you're right, I made a mistake. That is not repentance. That is confession. Both of those are an important part of repentance. But repentance means you're doing this and you do this and you go this way. That's repentance. Paul is introducing it right here. There's no caveat either. You know, Paul Paul says God commands everyone, everywhere to repent, (laughs) to change. And he also, he gives the the motivation to change, which in this case, it's not a positive motivation, (laughs) He he tells them, judgment's coming. Jesus is going to come back. It's not going to be like the first time. He will come back to claim his people and destroy his enemies. That's going to happen. You want to be on the right side. I mean, that, that, that truth, that's awesome for his people, but it's terrible for his enemies. But Paul doesn't stop with the judgment. He points instead to the person who has been appointed judge, Jesus Christ. And that was the perfect segue into sharing the gospel. He says, this man that God appointed was dead, but now he is risen. Now, of course, to us that sounds familiar, right? Because we've heard this a gazillion times. But how did it land among the pagans? I find it kind of strange here, honestly, that, that Paul doesn't even use Jesus' proper name, right? He refers to him as a man. And frankly, you might notice that at least what's included here, these verses, do not contain the full gospel. Remember, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes it clear. He says, here is what the gospel is. It's the message of salvation. He says specifically about the fact that Jesus is the Messiah and his death was to pay for our sins and he rose from the dead, right? And we don't read all of that in this particular passage, so why not? This is my my take on this. I think it is likely what we have recorded here is just an outline of what all that Paul actually said because otherwise it was a sermon that took like a minute. <laughs> and no preacher can... No, I'm just kidding. But, but it, it's, you know, I think it was probably a little more than what we have here. 
Um, but on, on top of that, from the passage right before this, we know he's already been preaching Jesus, right? So it's possible all of this, this message here was just tilling the soil because he'd already been scattering seeds everywhere. So now he's just trying to break up the soil so that the, so the stuff can take root, so it can bear fruit. But whatever the case, the reaction of the crowd here is mixed. Luke writes, Now when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined to him and believed, among whom also were Dion- Dionysius. I was going to say that wrong. Dionysius, the Ar- I should have practiced this beforehand. The Ari- Areopagite, the Mars Hillite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Dionysius the Areopagite. Wow. Uh, as, as a quick note, um, I am thankful that Luke was led to share about the women who were involved in Jesus' ministry and in the life of the church. Because his, his gospel and the book of Acts are very different from the other gospels in that respect. It, it's a reminder that everyone is valuable in God's kingdom. And what's funny is I wrote this before I went to a funeral yesterday, uh, really a celebration of life for a great man who was one of my professors at Dallas Christian College and one of Shannon's as well, and some of you also knew him. And his quote is, there are no insignificant people in the kingdom of God. Boy, is that true. From the least to the greatest, there is no insignificant person in the kingdom of God. Luke's really good about reminding us of that, I think. Now, very quickly, let's look at these three responses that Paul received. We're almost done. Uh, They're a pretty good summary, I think, of how the word of God is generally treated by those who hear it. Some, it says, mocked him for saying something that they, I guess, thought was outlandish. So we'll, we'll call their response to the truth about Christ rejection. Now, that is not encouraging, right? But the next group that's mentioned here, they were less skeptical. And they said that they would hear Paul speak again on this matter, which probably meant they wanted to take some time to think about it and and were open to more discussion. We're going to call that response reflection. So we have rejection, but we also have reflection. And then the third response was the one that every preacher hopes to see when he proclaims the gospel, and that is faith. The last group mentioned here believed in what Paul was preaching, and we'll call that wonderful thing reception. So, When we as Christians share the word of Christ, we can expect to encounter some who will receive the truth and some who will reflect on the truth and then possibly come back for more and then some who will outright receive it. And what's cool about this is, and what's good for us to remember is we are not the ones who are in charge of their response. God is. That's between them and God. And he is able to draw people in ways that we never will. So a person who rejects today, they might reflect the next time they hear a message. You know, and one day perhaps they'll receive it as true and they'll gain eternal life in Christ Jesus because of seeds that you planted. I think that's encouraging to think about. Uh, now, friends, th- this message was primarily aimed at believers so that you can reach out to unbelievers, but maybe, maybe that's not your demographic. You know, maybe you're here today and you're kind of on the fence about Jesus. You know, perhaps you're, you're willing to accept that his claims about himself are true, but you're not sure if, uh, if you're ready to follow him. I want to tell you, guys, there is no better time than now when it comes to following Christ. Now is always the time. Now. 
So listen, if, if, you, if you're still hanging around in that reflection phase, uh, let the Holy Spirit just push you over, you know, in, into reception. Receive Jesus. Confess him and be immersed as the scripture teaches. Be willing to, to respond wholeheartedly to that, that forgiveness that he offers and the eternal life that he freely gives to those who put their faith in him. And, you know, if you've already done that, then, then perhaps you need a reminder of his forgiveness. You know, receive him anew today. Be washed in his mercy and grace. 